Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm thrilled to have on a uh, top performance coach whose name is Damon D. Amore, who has a, a tremendous track record working on Wall Street at the height of the entertainment world. Um, the Apprentice, uh, all kinds of reality television, worked in movies, and now coaches the very top echelon of high performers in the business world. And we get into some really deep stuff, uh, which 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 spans the gamut. It's really like a, a conversation about what makes people people, and how do you find your why? How do you find meaning? How do you like, what are you trying to actually accomplish in your life with all of the efforts that you go to? So this was potentially a little bit more philosophic, um, but there was a lot of, a lot of great things there. I'm very excited about it. So with no further ado, I give you Damon Damore. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, Lift Your Legacy is committed to helping you live a more authentic and meaningful life. That being said, if I could ask you to share this podcast with someone that you think would get value from the message, that would be fantastic. In addition, I wanted to make you aware that along with the podcast, I do offer executive coaching. I help people who are successful and highly motivated, who want to see extreme, or not even so extreme, maybe just a small change that in their life. I want to help them get to the next level. What does that mean specifically? Creating more peace in your relationships with yourself, growing your business, clarifying your career. And even if you need a little bit of help losing some weight or getting more healthy, I do that also. I'm not for everyone, but for those people that are invested in making their life better and taking the next step, I highly recommend you consider me as a coach for you. Now, how do you get in touch? Well, you found the podcast. I wanted to tell you also my email, Jacob, my first name, Jacob at liftyourlegacy.live. Feel free, please, to reach out there or on all, any or all of my social media channels. I'd be thrilled to give you a complimentary half an hour conversation to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And now, with no further ado, I ask you to please sit back and enjoy the show. All right, I am thrilled to have on Damon Damore, um, who is, you know, I mean, we, we, we touched on this, but... A lot of coaches, like the whole coaching industry, and I'm a coach with full disclosure, uh, the coaching industry has become so popular and so crowded that you have all kinds of people that might or might not have any credibility, might or might not have actually done anything in their own lives. And Damon, from the very beginning, was really fascinating to me because not only have you built, scaled, and sold multiple companies and actually lived that startup entrep successful entrepreneur life, but you've really now been able to parlay your success and into a whole variety of things. You're, you're a keynote speaker. You, you work with, uh, you know, the, the very top of the American, and I, I think you're mostly working with Americans at this point, the, uh, the American entrepreneurial and financial and, and the, all the different heads of companies. And so I really feel like 
when, when we speak to each other, um, I can sort of get from you a perspective of what it looks like at the top. So tell me a little bit, if you could, um, how you, again, how do you put your whole life into a, uh, into a soundbite? I know it's very tough, but just maybe a few highlights uh, of your early work career and some wins there and how and why you parlay that into coaching and, and keynote speaking. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, glad we finally did this. I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey, and I wanted to work on Wall Street at a young age, and I got frustrated when I was in college that school was taking too long, so I took a job while I still was an undergrad as a ticket runner back in the day when they actually printed tickets and you had to run them into the pit. And uh, within a couple months, I was working on the trading floor, and by the time I was at my six-month anniversary, I was running a very small desk. I just had a really innate ability to track lots of numbers at the same time and add them up in my head quickly and be able to physically buy and sell and shout and do that stuff and hit a keyboard. So I was on Wall Street for five years. I worked for Cantor Fitzgerald in Tower One of World, World Trade Center, uh, 93 to 98. Also did some work for them in London, built some business over there, and then got burned out as you would expect if you all see the TV shows and the movies, lots of vices and uh, what was that was it like everything you like i guess was it was it like what people say it was for the for my first four years it was because it was it was before any like sexual harassment suits or any sort of hr rules at all it was literally insane um you know people just doing drugs on the desk in the morning to wake up in order to go to the training day um crazy stuff um, and then the suits started rolling in in the late 90s and things had to calm down a bit. But once you're out of the office, it was still the same excess of everything, uh, which okay. is fun when you're a kid. I was right. 21 when I started, um, but it, it, it really is brutal. And sure. Not sure. Um, so I left Wall Street and I took an unpaid internship to get into the f- independent film business. And I walked producers' dogs and made photocopies for them and coffee. And I worked for a small company in New York that had made a movie called Sling Blade. And Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. That's Thank awesome. You. It was great. So that movie was their first big hit. And then while I was there, I worked on a film called You Can Count On Me with Mark Ruffalo and Laura Linney that was our, the last movie before the company went under, as most film companies do. Um, but then I moved out to L.A. when that company went under. And I raised some money for my Wall Street friends, started a small production company that did not work out but I wound up transitioning into reality TV where my business experience was very helpful because I was a producer on The Apprentice with Donald Trump and then ultimately Undercover Boss. I helped choose all the CEOs for the first two seasons. So I wound up traveling around the country meeting hundreds and hundreds of these big Fortune 500, 1,000 CEOs. And because I was a business guy and actually had a real love for what they do, I developed a lot of friendships. And then after I left Undercover Boss, I started a small consumer products company in LA did okay, but then raised a venture capital fund based on that experience. That was a lot of fun, did great, and then ended in a horrible implosion that was, you know, like fireworks uh, on, on D-Day. Um, what do you mean? Uh, in the middle of a product release, we lost our main investor, couldn't raise money, had to lay everybody off. In a six-week period, that happened, laid everybody off, put the company on hold, and then my wife left all within six weeks. Um, so wow. it, was, it was brutal. Uh, and I was at a really low point and well, I let was, me, let me stop you there. If I could, when you were going through that, like kind of, what was that like for you? Up until that point, the hardest thing I ever went through was nine 11, having worked in tower one and lost a lot of people. 
And then my first divorce was brutal. Um, so I was on my second wife and very happy. And I was so into my entrepreneurial mindset. I didn't see my marriage crumbling at all. It was a total surprise wow. to me. Um, wow. But also I made, I made a very rookie mistake, but you know, you take capital when you can get it, but a, a, the bulk of my capital was, was raised from one investor. Okay. And, and when that guy decided not to meet his capital call, you can't put a gun to their head and make them right. do it. Um, and it was the middle of the summer, which is a horrible time to raise money because all these fund guys are on vacation, you know, and a visa or wherever. You get lots of emails that say, I'll be back after Labor Day. But we, were, we had a very specific cash burn. I stopped paying myself, which didn't, didn't help with my, you know, home situation. And then, uh, and then everything goes under and then you wake up one day and the person that you're in it with is gone. And I hit a really, really low point, which for me meant questioning for the first time in my life, like my, my real value as a person relating to other people. And I got to a really wow. dark place and had to get some serious, serious help to get me out of there. But I did. And once, my, once I was mentally and emotionally back to normal or at least functional, I looked at this big pile of ashes that was my company and my life's work. And I like dug deep inside for one ember that was still lit. And I found the piece of value that still resonated. And that was that I had built a brand that resonated with people that were not just investors, but the general public. I hosted a show for Discovery Channel Online. I had lots of media about what we were doing. So I built a lead gen company out of that lead generation for equity crowdfunding when it was booming, right when all the laws came into effect. And overnight, like within three months, we had a business that was doing a couple hundred grand a month in revenue. Like I built a multi-million dollar business out of this pile of like, I'm worthless, you know? <laughs> what was that? What was that? I, I, one of the things that so fascinates me is, is that transitionary moment of when you can kind of get out of the despair and then go back to the, you know, go back to the drawing board and start again. Was there, was there a, 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 like a mindset or a method to your madness as you started to build it? Like what got you over that hump? Or was it only once you had sort of built it and you looked around and you're like, okay, things are going again, that you were able to like transition out, the, out, of, that, out of that space? I couldn't see it because I was in such a scarcity mindset because I said, if I don't get more and more and more faster, faster, I'm going to lose everything again. Yep. I'm going to have no value to another partner if I want to find somebody, yep. a life partner. So it was really my therapist. It was my close friends. And it was my mentor, actually, like the only true mentor I'd ever had, which said, yo, take a step back. Like you built this thing after the lowest part of your life. You, um, you have value. But more importantly, just to remind you, you're a kid from Jersey with no college degree that like these big Fortune 500 CEOs you have on speed dial, like you shouldn't even be here, let alone having built this business. So you need to, you need to have some sort of self-compassion and pat yourself on the back and don't have an ego about it, but you need to recognize your wins. And, and that was, you know. Well, that, that's also a very profound point, which is that so often when we get wrapped up in our own our own mess, we don't take into account how unlikely or how much had to go into building where we are, if that makes sense. A hundred percent, because I look back on massive risks I took when I was married. And I said, if I had to do that again, like what was I even thinking? Like selling my car because right. I needed money for what? Like, are you insane? Um, right. One time I, I flew to Chicago to, to take a flight to Dubuque, Iowa. It got canceled. And the investor told me before I was going, I am not writing you a check. And my flight got okay. canceled in Chicago 
for weather. So I rented a car and I drove all night in the snow from Chicago to Dubuque, showed wow. up in his office. And because I had showed up, he wrote me a check for a hundred grand. And I was like, <laughs> like you need to, but you know, things a rational person. There's a great uh, venture investor named Don Valentine legend. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have to have an, an irrational belief in yourself. Like you have to have, it's this kind of stuff you can't even tell your spouse. Like I'm a big goal setter, but I would never yeah. share my real goals with my wife or my girlfriend at the time because they would say, Oh, you know, maybe make a few million dollars, but you want to make this much. You want to set up a foundation, be a philanthropist. Like why don't you just make $5 million to go buy a house? And you know, if you think big, that scares a lot of people. So. That's fascinating because because that's somewhat contrary to what a lot of a lot of the uh, the information out there is, which is if you have a big dream, you should talk about it and you should put it out there. You're saying that that maybe you put a certain amount out there, but beyond that, if you don't have, I mean, you can. I I, I always look at this with with people and I say sort of if you have that d- d- drive and desire, it's like okay, so then maybe there's something that you can do with that. Um, but you you're saying like don't put it all out there because it's still going to come off as, as too big for the people that are not in your head seeing, you know, that are seeing the reality, not really seeing your potential. So for the general public or for people, you need to be advocates in order to get your business going. Sure. Like talk big, but when you're in bed at night with your partner, whoever that is, um, and you need to talk on the real side, it's, I would usually reel those things back and I'd be like, baby, if I, if I raise the first half million, this thing's going to go. I don't have to raise the full 10 or whatever. You know, you're reeling it back in or you're, you know, you're like, you know, it's, you have to. It's, and it also the reverse. Towards the end of my relationship, I would lay in bed terrified at night and my wife would say, what's wrong? And I would spin this giant wheel of fortune wheel with like a hundred things going wrong in the business and I'd choose one. And I would basically say, well, you know, if this doesn't happen, things are going to get really bad. And she would turn the light on and jump up and be like, you're going to go get a job tomorrow. What if that doesn't happen? And I said, this whole right is built on a stack of Tinder. If you knew the 99 other things that were possibly going to go wrong. So you have to keep your, your biggest dreams to yourself and you have to have, you have to keep your biggest fears to yourself. You can only let them out in like little bits because I used to say that people say, Oh, you sacrifice so much to be an entrepreneur. I didn't sacrifice anything. I got to live the life I wanted to live. It's a sacrifice for your spouse or your employees who don't go on vacation, don't, you know, don't have financial success, might feel trapped. Um, so your dream is not their dream. They're supporting your dream, but the person you're with isn't waking up every day saying to themselves, today I'm going to help my partner build a, a new venture capital model for the future. Like, no, that's not what they're into. So um, so you need to, so I guess that, that's, that's, that's the definition, kind of the lonely, the lonely road that a person ultimately has to be on. Right. That's the point is it's like you, and be interesting to figure out how does that, how does that kind of connect in on the realm of like true intimacy with somebody else. But in general, you're saying like, you have to be able to manage your own expectations and kind of be your own biggest cheerleader because you can't really offsource that to anybody else, at least not someone you're close to because, and, and I say this a lot, it's like what, what you see as an issue, their whole like livelihood might be at stake. And so they're like completely out of power. And so they're going to come back with all their fears and it's nothing to do with you, but it's just like, you know, imagine what you're putting this person through. 
And it's not fair to them because even if they do empathize with you, they're your problems. They can't fix them. So you're yes. putting an unfair burden on them. Um, I was with somebody recently, a friend of mine, and it's taken about you know decades, but they started a business with three people and now it's a multi-billion dollar business. I can't say on the here because they're just still private. But, um, but, and we talked about the fact how lonely it is up there when you think that once you get to a point, but you, you can't talk to anybody about your fears, people at home, people that work for you, people in the press, your investors, your customers. Um, so I think it really comes down to you, how do you find a partner? You find somebody who's truly passionate about anything and understands that you wake up with a spark. I don't care if you're passionate about being the best barista in the world or knitting or building a billion dollar business. But if you don't know what passion is, we're not going to vibe. And, and I can't be honest with you. And also they've had to experience some sense of loss in their life. They have to know that the sky is going to fall because that's what happens in life, but you're going to be okay. You're resilient. You're going to like figure it out. When I've been with people who romantically are in, in business partnerships, who never experienced loss, that very first big challenge, they say, Oh, this must not be the right thing to do because there's all these things. And I say, no, like, the horrible things are going to happen every day. Like my definition of optimism as a resilient person is that I wake up happy every morning saying stuff's going to go wrong, but I know I'm going to survive and be okay. And I have the tools, resources, relationships, intellect to then thrive once I get back on my feet because I've done it over and over. Which I find is ultimately the antidote to the scarcity mindset, you know, and, and I see a lot of the clients that I work who are, frankly, like, you know, terrified of losing all their money or their business is going sideways or, you know, the real estate market's shifting. They're going to be, and I'm like, dude, of all the people in the world that don't have to worry, it's you. Not because like your business couldn't go broke because it could, but you built this from the ground up. You'll just go back to work and build something else. So it's like, you know, ultimately it's like the shift in the focus has to be not on the resources that are making you the money, but recognize that you're the resource or you're the asset. And that even if the economy goes sideways, you, unless as long as you have like more breath left, you know, in, in you, you can go out and, and build, build the next thing. So half of my clients are big, big C-suite executives, hundred million, billion dollar plus. My top three clients right now do about 19 billion in revenue combined. But I also coach these venture backed companies and I tell them exactly what you said when they get scared, Unless you only have one great idea for the rest of your life, yeah, you should be scared. But the likelihood is if this fails, you're going to think of something else because you're an entrepreneur. And the second thing is that you are the talent. You're, you're what's valuable. When they get scared to go pitch these investors and VCs, I said, I said these people need you. Their job is to deploy capital so they can generate fees. They, they, they need people like you. So, you know, you're Tom Cruise, you're Beyonce, you're whoever. Um, they don't, they see themselves as the moment scarcity mindset, but I say they have the scarcity mindset. They need places to deploy capital and you need to convince them that, that yours is a better place than somebody else. Of those top three clients type of people, and obviously we're not disclosing names or, or industries or anything like that. Where do you see, because I think it's an interesting question. I think it's a very humanizing situation. It's like, you know, when, when you see old people, for example, you know, like all, <laughs> it's like, you can't do And you know, it's an interesting thing. Amongst amongst the absolute top performance of the people that you work with, what are their biggest challenges? I guess say and and what are the like what are the things that they're focusing on for that that, that contributed to this level of success that they have? 
So the biggest challenge is, um, it's actually on my board right behind me, not on purpose though, but I'm redoing a slide for my deck, but my, my system is based on three pillars, mindset, resilience, and storytelling. And a lot of these folks, if they've gotten to that level, have a pretty secure mindset. They have filters by which they filter every priority or every opportunity, and they have some sort of system that they can they've learned to focus. Uh, but once you can focus, some of them don't know how to have a resilient mindset and how to kind of you know go into every day ready for things to go wrong. But even the ones that do, the number one issue that I see with these big folks is storytelling. They don't know how to tell a story that's compelling and memorable to any stakeholder, whether it's your board, your customers, your employees, or your spouse. You know, they're probably your biggest stakeholder. So storytelling is a massive um, uh, chasm in their skill set because they've relied on marketing people and PR and communications people, but they ultimately need to be able to tell everybody under them, why, why are you following me? Tell your board, why are you trusting me? And, you know, tell any stakeholder. So I work a lot with a combination of both hero's journey and traditional third act structure stuff, like from my, my narrative stuff from my, my film days. But that's the number one skill set. So, so that, that's very interesting because I think, and, and this is something that particularly fascinates me as a, I guess you could say as a rabbi and as a historian and, and, as, a, and as a person that, that has dabbled a little bit in philosophy and business mindset you know, the, the fact that the ancient stories, um, and I'm not necessarily putting just whatever that means, you know, ancient people have been telling stories for a very long time. And one of the fascinating aspects of what we're able to do now with our scientific background is to be able to look into the philosophic and the psychological realities of how people build things and realize that a lot of the ancient stories were actually capturing what Jung and Freud and, and all these kinds of people are saying. And it's interesting because Hollywood, for example, you know, just like off the top of your head, it's like, oh, well, that's just, that's nothing. Or that's just, that's fantasy. But the reality is that fantasy and the ability to, to weave an effective story is ultimately the greatest, I think, in a lot of ways, indicator of, of real practical success. And even if the story itself isn't true, if it's compelling and it gets people to act, then like there's a tremendous amount of power there. Yeah, that's the great line from Wall Street when Michael Douglas says that the, the illusion has become real and the more real it becomes, the more they want it. It doesn't matter that the baseline fundamentals don't even exist. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge public Elon Musk basher. This guy should be in prison by now from the safety violations to the financial fraud. But he released this, you know, cyber truck last week, he's taking reservations on, it'll never be built, the materials don't even exist, you know, but these fanboys, it's like 200,000 people over the weekend put 100 bucks down to reserve one because they want to believe the story, they want to believe there's a visionary who's going to help push them that they can take part in this new, this new era of innovation or whatever it is, and it's the greatest brands do it better than anybody, you know, I disagree with so, so much that Nike has done politically, in the political realm, but I'm a, I'm a lifelong SB dunk wearer. I'm wearing a Nike thing now. I got 70 yeah. pairs of dunks. I don't care what Colin, 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 Colin says. Um, I'm still going to buy my Nikes, but there are other brands who will tell a story and I will stop. Uh, I will stop advocating them. You know, that's so funny to notice that because at, at a certain point, once, I mean, I, I think for me, one of the, you know, you sort of look at the great entrepreneurial stories of just that we're living through right now. And I'm sure in every era, 
for those people who had the for, who were fortunate enough to kind of like know, you know, have enough information about this kind of stuff, just because obviously like information wasn't as, as, as uh, didn't proliferate as much as it does now. But it, it's very interesting, like when a story you, when you really become a fan, like a quote unquote, a fanboy of a certain brand, like for me, like Apple can do no wrong, even though it's like, I know Samsung's products are superior, you know, and I know that they're more interesting, but I'm never going to buy it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it, it's a very, or, or how Under Armour tells a compelling story or Nike tells a com- compelling story. It's like, I don't need, you know, uh, the, the 200 plus dollar premium on any of these products, but I'm going to buy it for that stupid little logo. And mm-hmm. I'm going to spend the money on it. You, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, how does that, and, and then to, to go back to realize that that was just an effective story that somebody told, it, it opens up in a lot of ways for me personally, it opens up more questions than it does provide answers because it's like, well, if we could make that up, then what else can you make up? And does the, does the, does the major focus become an actual product or service you're trying to offer? Or is it just the story that you can craft that can inspire people to, to do? I, I don't, I, you know, it's like, it's like coaching also. People are like, what do you really do? And as a coach, I know that my clients do all of the work. I don't do anything in a lot of ways. And so it's like, what do you actually do? And on one hand, it's like nothing. On the other hand, it's like everything. Because before they started working with me, they, they didn't do what they were having now. Does that make sense? Yeah, there was, a, there was a great Bill Burr recent special on Netflix. And he says people were criticizing you know, some witness in Congress for like making something up. And the people are like, how could you make that up? And he's like, Star Wars is made up. Like, you know, like, it's like what you were saying. Like, why would you pay that 200 bucks? Because you have an emotional benefit you have a connection to it and it's the same way with these executives they need to have somebody look at them see their name hear them speak see an email come up in their inbox and get an emotional cue of like oh this guy cares more than other people he's smarter he's more visionary he's unsafe whatever it might be and i had a client uh 70 of my clients are women so i work mostly with women uh, not on purpose it's just happened that way but one of them was in a media communications business for about 20 years, big top three company in the space globally, left and was starting her consultancy business and was like, well, how am I different than thousands of other consultants in the media business? So over a three month process, I built out her own personal hero's journey. And when she, when she was done, she had a one line log line that she could tell people if she bumped into Barry Diller in an elevator. She had a a one pager for a website or LinkedIn, but she had a solid 10 or 15 minute talk at a dinner party or even a TED talk about why she matters. And when I showed her the final, final result of the last meeting, she literally started crying. And she said, I've never known why I matter. You know, all the money I made, all, all, the, all the props I got, but now I can see why I'm different than everybody else that does what I do. And I said, now you believe that you're your own story. And if, if you believe it, when you tell it, other people will. Like it's like going to pitch for money or people in Hollywood. If you're pitching a story to a studio and you don't believe it's good, they're not going to believe it's good. You you have to have this irrational belief in yourself to bring it back. It's funny. It's funny because this very much goes back to what we were saying previously, in the sense that you know what your mentor told you when you lost all of that money and got back on. It was like, hey, you're some kid from Jersey that didn't go to college, and you're like, oh yeah, like that. You know, in a way, like. The, the breakdown and the depression and the darkness really comes in when you lose sight of who, of who you are. And I, I, you know, I think um, it's so hard because no one's really ever going to accomplish something that was never really done before. 
So, yeah. so then all of our lives just become finding our, our original story and kind of owning that and realizing that that's our greatest, that's our greatest strength. It's not like you're going to have bigger biceps than you're never gonna have the world's biggest biceps or you're never gonna have the world's biggest paycheck, you know, like, and, and, and even if you could, it's like, you go ask those guys, like, is that what you're most proud of? And I, you know, again, we, we look at the, we, we look at, you know, like money for a lot of people indicates the level of success. But if you look at the people that have all of the money, so to speak, and I was just reading Forbes, they just had the guy that runs um, Louis Vuitton and like whatever, 85 other brands. And it's just, he's working nonstop because he's living for something that is not, it's not about the money for him. And it's not about the money for Jeff Bezos. And it's not about the money for Warren Buffett. And I'm sure it's not about the money for any of these other people that, that, that you're working with, it's like, what's my contribution? Who am I? And, and I, I think for me, what's interesting is noticing that you don't have to have a massive platform or a huge company in order to start asking those kinds of questions. And if you do get there without asking those kinds of questions, all of the success becomes more of a liability than, than any kind of a benefit. It's so funny you say that because when I started my coaching business, all my startup pals were said, well, how are you going to scale it? And I said, scaling is bullshit. Maybe I'll be happy with only three to four clients a year charging a bunch of money if I'm able to at some point. But like, you know, in addition to my corporate stuff, I, I do legacy coaching, which we can talk about. But, you know, most of those clients are, are liquid billionaires who now have all this money and they say, how do I make an impact? Because I never thought about it before. So if, you know, my goal in the next, by the end of next year is only to have two or three clients per year that are these, you know, very high, high-end corporate folks or, or high-end venture-backed folks so that I can focus the rest of my time on having more of an impact, whether it's through media, having another show or podcast, finishing my book. I love public speaking. But, you know, you can't coach a thousand people in an auditorium. I don't care what Gary Vee and these dudes say. That's not coaching. It's motivation, which is great. Um, but when people walk out of that room, they have nothing to hold on to, no accountability, no next step. So I want to, you know, you don't have to have to, you don't have to scale it. You just have to be able to make the best impact. So if I know, if, if I make an impact with somebody that has 30,000 employees globally, that's going to be an exponential wave of an impact as opposed to me making 30,000 lives change in the Staples Center because I'm up there, you know, screaming about whatever. So It's so funny because that was literally, uh, we, I, had a, I had a board meeting with, um, with my board. I have a nonprofit that I, do, that I work with. And um, one of the points that I was saying was that if you look at a lot of the biblical stories, they all seem extremely trite in the sense that, you know, this person buries this, you know, their spouse here and they, and they go here and they, you know, they get married there. But what comes out of that are these massive implications that millions and billions of people have been buying into and discussing and fighting over and all that kind of stuff for all of eternity. And you're right. It's the same thing. It's like, you know, what is it? Ultimately, what are you doing? Ultimately, what is it worth? And, and at the end of the day, it comes down to trying to figure out, you know, where, where do I best deploy my, my assets, be it financial, be it, I'm saying like your advice, your time. And I, I think that the big, the big loss for a lot of people is not being strategic about that question and sort of like living your life without trying to figure out like, where is this all, where is this all going? Yeah, look, I have a pro bono client. I take one a year, sometimes more, but this year one because she really needed it and she has the capacity if she gets her head straight to go be successful. I coach inner city kids for entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, it's, um, it, it's, 
the little things matter. And I was talking to somebody maybe a week or two ago about end of the year giving. They said, oh, uh, where are you putting your money? I, I support a lot of veteran-owned charities and uh, about PTSD and trauma and suicide prevention. But they give all their money to these giant global charities like Red Cross. Right. It doesn't do anything. I mean, whatever. There's so much overhead yeah. for whatever. It's yeah. great. But I said that, that amount of money could literally probably feed like 10 people for a year in downtown LA. And they were like, well, if I can't help everybody, I don't want to help anybody. I said, that's all on you. That's bullshit. That's all ego. But number two, what if one of these inner city kids is the next Jeff Bezos? Is, is or the next cures cancer or something. Yeah. What's the next, next Ben Carlson becomes the greatest head surgeon ever, you know? So it is, scaling is bullshit. We've been told in this culture that you have to build a billion dollar business you know, a unicorn. I heard somebody on a business podcast recently say, well, they only grew that to 400 million. I'm like, oh, are you insane? You know, they've created generational wealth for wherever they're from. So you got to get over this sense that if it's not big, it doesn't matter. There's actually a chapter in a book called Go Big and Go Broke instead of Go Big or Go Home because most people aren't ready when they go big. You know, I want to get my product into Walmart. Really, it's probably going to bankrupt you if you're not ready for it kind of thing. Right, right. Um, no, I mean, that, and that's, and that's, Ultimately, it comes down to, to, and this is something that, that, that plagues me and, and also like one of the, I, I don't know if you'd say, say the same about you, but, but one of the reasons why I like coaching and I like doing all of the media stuff that I do is because it's a very public way for me to work through my own stuff. Oh, and yeah. and, and I, I'm, I'm open about it. It's like, you know, I, and I don't like to, to act like I've got a lot of this stuff figured out. I'm, I think my greatest value to people is I can listen and understand because I have either been there or I am there in whatever iteration of, of, the, of the process. But, you know, it, it's so frustrating because we get overwhelmed trying to figure out, you know, okay, so what is my ultimate big player? Where am I supposed to put my, my time? You think you, you know, it's like, I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to work with three clients. It's like, is that the greatest use of my time? Maybe it's, I'm going to write the book. Or, and, and the three clients are going to distract me. But I always feel like that's, if it, if it overwhelms you, that's always like two steps down the line. And what shouldn't overwhelm you is like, what is my next available step? So like you said, exactly right. It's like, you know, Walmart might be three steps out. And if you're focusing on pitching Walmart, but you haven't made sure that all of your back end is ready to roll, should they say yes, you're screwed. And so your greatest opportunity is going to like, is going to ruin you, you know? It's like Clay Davis told Stringer Bell on the wire, crawl, walk, run. Stringer just wanted to run. <laughs> right. No, it's totally and that's and that's ultimately I think that's the biggest danger of the of the social media stuff is it's like you are one click away from someone that's running so fast and you never spend the time to get their own backstory or to figure out that there was steps up until that process or what they had to pay to get there. So it's just like you're screwed. There's no way, there's no way for that to work in an inspiring way in the slightest because all you're seeing are people running all around you. Yeah, if, if you're if you're helping people, great. But I see these Instagram coaches or whatever, and I say to myself, well, if they didn't have success in 2019, would they be living in their mom's basement for five years till they till they hit? Probably not. They'd be off something else. You know, maybe one of them would, and that's the one you should follow. But right. we have no idea what these people are doing. It's almost like back on the cribs MTV. These rappers leased cars and jewelry. You think that they live this crazy life and then the cameras go off and everything goes away. Right. I guarantee that somebody who's waking up at 3 a.m., meditating for two hours, taking a fruit freezing cold bath, you know, chugging their homemade kombucha thing, like all the reading 50 books a week or whatever these guys, 
they're not happy. Like they're running so fast to try to, to try to get something, but it's, it's like a, a dog on a track with a rabbit. You're never going to catch that rabbit, dude. So be the best person you can be and then find some way to share the best of you with other people and make them just 1% better. And at some point, they're going to live a better life. Like that's all it's about. I love it. Okay, so here's, here's the deal. I, I feel like, I feel like this, this has to be part one because we didn't even get into the coaching and the writing and the, uh, and the public speaking. But I do think that there was a lot of very important things that were, that were brought out. So if you could, tell, tell the listeners how they can find the stuff you're doing and, and then I think we have to, we have, we'll, we'll do part two coming up. Sure. My website uh, is LegacyMentor.co, C-O. And Instagram, I publish almost every day, Legacy Mentor Official. And through my website, you can reach my blog, which is on my personal site, DamonDemore.com, without the apostrophe. But I publish a weekly reading list of my top five blog posts, podcasts, things I'm reading or listening to for personal development. People seem to love that. Awesome. Damon, thank you so much for the time, my friend. This was really nice speaking with you. You too. Let me know when you want to do this part two. You got it. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.